because it is 9.45. Good morning, people. Good morning, people. Hello. That is not my name. Okay, we're moving on. Um, this is Sunday School. All of you know this because I know all of you people, unless you've forgotten. And I'm Anthony, unless you've forgotten. Um, and we're studying the Apostles' Creed, and it's a powerful time. So um, we will just jump in by reading the Creed if we all stand together, and then I will have you break up into questions. We can, can like consolidate these tables because we'll have a, a question to start with. Um, but yes, so let's begin. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Father God, we are grateful for your tender mercies that you've shown toward us, um, just in allowing us to be here and consider who you are and all that you've done for us in Christ. And we ask now that you would send your Holy Spirit to be a most effectual teacher because uh, there's nothing that I can do uh, with my feeble and defiled human efforts apart from your effectual grace working in me uh, to strengthen your people with the nourishment which only you can give. And so I thank you for your gracious act in causing me to be an instrument of encouragement for these your people. And I pray that we would all derive benefit from this lesson and that we would all be granted perseverance therefrom. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, if you three people can join these tape, like, because we're going to discuss things. And so, I don't want you to just be on an island or something. Not a very large class today. So I want us to discuss for a few minutes. Um, the first question on our little listy thing is, what is sin? And um, I don't want us to just discuss what is sin, because I think that we can answer that really quickly. So what also were you taught about sin in your church? Um, if you did not grow up in church, I still think that you probably learned something about sin, uh, whether it didn't exist or, you know. So discuss that. I'll give you like three minutes, maybe four minutes if I'm merciful. And um, yeah, go. <laughs> Could you sit with these people? Yes. And I like that blouse. Okay, I've seen you. Oh. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I can't be blamed. I knew that I could assume. Um, I never really understood what sin was. 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 I never really understood
I'm about to wrap it up. Gonna wait for Andrea. Okay, people. Have to bring it back in. What are some things that we um, discussed at our tables? Anyone? I can pick tables if we want, but I'm, I'm allowing you to have free will today, which is a lot for a Calvinist. So. We had everything, and our actually had four rather different upbringings. Wow. From cheap grace, mm-hmm. kind of do what you want and ask what you're asked for forgiveness later, mm. to. Um, kind of a strict morality that's built more around being a good person, a contributing member of society, Mm -hmm. very strict, um, religiously couched morality. Mm -hmm. These things are sins, and you will not deviate Mm -hmm. to um, no no concept of sin growing up at all. Um, That realization came later, especially in terms of... um, Anything that I do to fall short of the mark, offending God, that was not. So we had rather different. Yeah, that's quite a potpourri of a potpourri of sin, sin doctrine. What about at this table? We kind of had several perspectives as well. Yeah. He said it very well. But, you know, from you sin, you die. You got to have to. You know, everything's okay. Yeah. Morality and just being a good person. Mhm. Oh. And what about over here? I heard you talking, Max, so just go ahead. <laughs> you talked the longest, and I was listening. We talked about uh, what sin was, so it's evil, missing the mark, those basic things. That's what we've been taught. And then I added in that over time I learned that sin was a part of my nature, that sin was at some level alive. Yeah. And so understanding that helps understand how forgiveness holistically works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very good. Um, the Westminster Confession of Faith. I didn't put what number it was, but you guys probably don't care. I care more than you do, probably. <laughs> yes, you have. Good times. Um, it defines sin as sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God, which in short means um, it's basically when you don't do what God tells you to do and when you do what God tells you not to do. And that is what we would call, because as Mac was pointing out, there is, I would say, different levels or logical progressions of sin. And so this question, I think it's question 18 in the catechism, is defining what theologians call actual sin. And that's when you actually do what God tells you not to do. But actual sin, um, really going to a lot of... uh, what you guys were talking about with the strict, you know, this is sin, you go to hell if you do this, which is very true. But there's something deeper to our sin problem than just um, that we do bad things. 
the Bible does not merely reduce the problem that we have with God. And the reason why I wanted to start with defining what sin is, is because we will not be able to appreciate the forgiveness of God until we understand the depths of uh, how sin affects us and what sin is. And so this section of my lesson is actually a pretty lengthy section because I really want to give the forgiveness that God gives its proper um, due by con contrasting it with the depths of our own human depravity. But actual sin, if you turn to Romans, the first chapter, it's one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible, that and Deuteronomy 32. Um, but it, I'm not going to read it because it's a very lengthy passage, starting at verse 18 and going to the end of the chapter. Actual sin, in the logic of Paul's argument in Romans 1, is actually the last part of a progression in a chain. And so usually we'll talk about sin merely from this uh, point action instance, and that's not at the heart of what sin is. Another issue that we kind of point to with sin, um, I don't like going in this direction, why did I do this? Okay, it's okay. I can, I can do this. Is pollution. That we think of sin in terms of sin is, and, and this really comes from thousands of years of medieval theology working its way into our normal parlance, but sin is this idea of it's an uncleanness. So um, in the doctrine of purgatory in uh, Roman Catholicism, the reason why people go to purgatory is because if you have a stain of, origin of sin on your soul, then nothing unclean can enter into heaven, and so you have to be purged from your sins before you can enter into heaven. Or um, the reason why uh, Mary is called the Immaculate Virgin is because the word immaculate means that she is without spot. And so there's this idea of an uncleanness that pervades the soul in God um, is almost pictured as this cosmic uh, obsessive compulsive neat freak that he can't have any gross spots on his wonderful heavenly white couch and so he can't let you into heaven until he washes you up. Uh, or, you know, I've heard it talked about, well, God can't be around sin because sin is icky and sin is nasty. And that's not primarily why God can't be around sin. I mean, think about God dwelling in the tabernacle. There was, the tabernacle was full of sinners, and it was built by sinners, and yet God dwelt in the midst of a sinful people. God can choose to dwell in the midst of sinful people. But the reason why the Bible talks about um, in the book of Habakkuk, that God cannot look upon evil is not because it's dirty. It is because in our very core, and this is what I'm going to read from uh, Romans 1, at our very core, we have a preference over created thing, of created things over the Creator, that we belittle God's infinite majesty and glory, and we love that which He has created. We prefer His blessings far above our preference for him. And as a matter of fact, it's not just us preferring him more, uh, excuse me, created things more. It's us really hating God, the Bible says. It's, you, there is no middle ground where, you know, I just, you know, I feel pretty neutral about God today. The Bible says that you either love God or you hate God. There's no middle ground there. And so Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and his divine nature, uh, uh, nature invisible though they are, this is a new version, so it kind of throws me off in some places, um, have been understood and seen through the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For though they knew God, this is very important, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks, but they became futile in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, in verse 23, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling uh, a mortal human being or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. And then notice in verse 24, there's a therefore. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. So now we have this pollution in verse 24, but the pollution comes on the heels of the fact that we have preferred the creation over the creator. And this is, Paul's not the only person who talks this way. Um, in, let me find it in my, oh, there we go. Backside of the page. Um, in John 3, 18, um, somebody turn to John 3. 
let's, let's assign, I'm going to, yes, you have questions? Oh, you have John 3. Yes, John 3, 18 through 21. Yes, and someone turned to Proverbs uh, 8, 32 through 35. Who wants that? Yeah. Uh, who, who said that? Ah, Mac. Um, Proverbs 8, 32 through 35. Um, someone turned to Jeremiah 2, 4 through 13. Anybody? Okay. Um, 4 through 13. And I think that's all I have. Yeah. Okay. John 3. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Yes, he is. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Mm -hmm. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Mm -hmm. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So Jesus, um, by the revelation of John, is telling us that the reason why people don't do righteousness is because, one, they love darkness, and two, they hate the light. John's understanding of our sinfulness isn't, oh, people are just bad because they do bad things, and you just chose to do that bad choice, and so, you know, it's okay, just do better next time. It is that there is a fundamental biasing of your will toward wickedness and toward rebellion against God. Proverbs 8.32 through 35. Now, O sons, listen, blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me and watches daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. Whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. Mm -hmm. And he who fails to find me injures himself. Mm -hmm. All who hate me love death. So note that... I just love how there's no neutral point in the Bible. It's either you love wisdom or you love death. There's no middle ground. Uh, the reason why people don't love, because many theologians uh, will connect wisdom in Proverbs 8 to Jesus, because um, he's the wisdom of God. And so if you don't love Jesus, I mean, Jesus says in, in one of the Gospels, that's in your Bible, he says, if you are not for me, you're against me. There, there's no middle ground. Someone, uh, if you'll read Jeremiah 2. Mm -hmm. They did not say, Where is the Lord and who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through, where no man dwells. And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things, so that when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. Mm -hmm. The priests did not say, Where is the Lord? Those who came the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. Prophets prophesied by Baal, and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. For cross to the coast of Cyprus and see, and send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. As a nation changes gods, even though they are no gods, but my people have changed their glory for what sh for that which does not profit. Mm -hmm. Be appalled, O heavens of this be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. Mm -hmm. They have forsaken me in the fountain of living waters and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So the, the transgression which God says all of creation ought to be utterly appalled at is that a creature would look at God and all of his infinite majesty. And then I, I wanted to read that large section because God explains all of the kindness that he lavishes on the children of Israel and all the things that he's done for them. And then we take all of that and then we say, eh, I'm just going to go suck on some dirt. <laughs> we, we see the fountain of the living water. And then we say, I'm going to go to the desert and I'm going to keep digging in this dirt until I get water and am satisfied because I see this wonderful, refreshing fountain over here, but I just don't want it. That's why Jesus called uh, the Pharisees an adulterous generation because God was standing right in front of them and they didn't want him. And, and that is not just a Pharisee problem, that's a human problem. 
That's a you and me problem apart from the Holy Spirit, that when we are encountering God, we do not want him. We find God to be boring, and even worse than that, we find God to be distasteful and unpalatable. And so it takes the miracle of the Holy Spirit to uh, transform us because this is an inherent, as Max said, um, issue that's in our very nature. The core problem, as all of these passages have pointed to, I'm just going to read my notes, the core problem with the human being is that we have inherent bondage of the will to our preferring created things over God. This bondage of the will we call original sin. Uh, uh, Yes, Original sin. So original sin in the Westminster Catechism uh, is, well, it asks this question. Uh, Sin. The sinfulness of the estate wherein two man fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first transgression, the want of original righteousness, and the corruption of the whole nature, which is commonly called original sin, together with the actual transgressions which proceed from it. So notice... What the Catechism says, and I think the Catechism says what the Bible says, and that's why I'm quoting the Catechism, um, it's saying that because we have inherited from our first parent, Adam, a corrupted nature, our actual sins, our lust and our lying and our murder and our hatred and our gossip, all of that proceeds from the fact that at our core we are corrupt, which is to say that Contrary to what, as far as I'm aware, every other religion teaches, we, do not, we are not sinners because we engage in acts of sin. We, are, uh, we sin because we are sinners. That is our very nature apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And as I've said, and I'll write this on the board because I've written the other ones. On, well, that's, that's green. Well, I can't handle that. <laughs> I can't. We're already going in the wrong direction, so I can't. This... Oh my gosh, why didn't you guys say something to me? Uh, <laughs> yes, because it's getting more intense. So, because it's at the. Yeah! Thank you. I like that idea. All right, so original sin, it is what we have inherited from Adam. And, and um, this doctrine, actually, interestingly enough, is very much coming under attack in our modern society as we're finding more um, paleontological um, evidence about genes and all this stuff. Um, People are trying to, and I can think of a few prominent theologians who deny the doctrine of original sin, but I don't think that you can get around uh, Romans 5, which is pretty clear in what it's teaching about our sinful estate. Uh, Romans 5 is comparing Adam to Christ, and they, people will try to get around the, um, the idea that we have received our sinful nature from Adam because of a little phrase, and I can't remember which verse, but I don't want us to have to go there if you don't want to. Um, but it says, uh, death passed from Adam until Moses, even though the law had not been given, so sin wasn't imputed, because all sinned. And they'll say, um, well, all sinned, that means that you experience death because you sinned. And that's not what all sinned means in, in, in the Greek. It's, a, it's an aorist verb. And so it's a point action in the past. It's not, uh, it does not say it's not a present tense action. So it's not um, all experience death because all are sinning or all sin. It's not a continuous action in the past. So it's not all were sinning between Adam and Moses. And so all experience death. It's a point action. It's a one-time action that happens that Paul is referencing. And so the only thing in the context that we can see that that sin would be would be Adam's transgression. And that would follow through with the rest of the logic of Romans 5. Because he is comparing the way that we have righteousness in Christ to the way that we fell in Adam. And so if Adam's sin and transgression was passed on to us because he sinned, and he created some sort of general atmosphere of sin that we entered into by our actual sin, that means that the way we are righteous is because Jesus created some sort of atmosphere of righteousness that we enter into through our righteousness. And that's completely opposite of Paul's whole argument in the book of Romans. Paul argues that we are righteous because of the imputed righteousness of Christ. And so he's saying that just as our sin is because of us 
in Adam, receiving the guilt of Adam's sin, us being put by God's grace in, hello, us being put in Adam, uh, in Christ, the second Adam, is our righteousness. That's where it comes from. And then, from that new nature, our actual righteousness flows. And there's another concept that we can see, just in case you think I'm making up um, what we call the federal headship, or the fact that we receive our um, iniquity from Adam, not just because Adam sinned and we're victims of the fall, but when the passage says all sinned, it's suggesting that we are participants in the fall. That in Adam, we actually participated in rebellion against God. And we see this also in a different context in the book of Hebrews, where Levi participates in giving a tithe to Melchizedek. And that is um, the author of Hebrews' uh, argument as to why um, Melchizedek is greater than Levi, because Levi is in Abraham, and Abraham gives tithe to Melchizedek, and the, he says it's obvious that the one who gives the tithe is lesser than the one who receives the tithe, and Jesus is the priest after the order of Melchizedek, and so therefore um, Jesus is greater than the Levitical priesthood. And so this is um, very important because it shows that, as Mac was saying, Hit it on point today. God bless you. As Mac was saying, that our sinful nature is not just um, decisions. I can't say that enough. It is it the importance of original sin and the importance of uh, if you're a Calvinist total depravity is that if you do not recognize your utter hopelessness before God and that because of your preference of created things over the Creator, not only is there a, an incongruity in justice, but God is lividly angry with you because you have rejected Him, then you are in deep trouble. And I want to discuss the, the issue of wrath. What does it mean for God to have wrath against? And how much time do I got? Yeah, plenty of time. Uh, I know, right? So the wrath of God, just like we talk about sin as a substance, uh, we also talk about the wrath of God as a substance. That's something that God pours out on people. And the Bible does describe it in that way. But that is, I would argue, figure of speech mostly. The wrath of God is an abstract term that is describing... Um, God's displeasure towards sinners. It's not simply an outside of God, just God doing something um, in order to correct justice. I, I really have a problem with uh, the idea that God does something because justice demands it. Because when you say justice demands something, what you're saying is there is some sort of principle outside of God that constrains God to do something. And there is nothing higher than God that constrains him to do anything. And so when God exercises justice against the wicked, this is the definition that I came up with, I put the wrath of God is God's own good pleasure in vindicating his glory by exacting vengeance upon rebels who have belittled his infinite worth and value. Now, I think we should probably get some verses under that. So turn to Deuteronomy, somebody. Um, Deuteronomy 28. Uh, 58 through 63. Who wants that? Okay. 28 through 63. Uh, oh, excuse me. It was 28, 58 through 63. A lot of eights. Okay. 28. Yes. Verse 58 through verse 63. Yes. And then someone else read Deuteronomy is like my favorite book right now. So Deuteronomy 32, 39 through 43. Yes. Do you have it, Melinda? Yeah, right. Hit it. If you're not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary affliction, affliction severe and lasting, and sickness grievous and lasting, and he will bring upon you again all the diseases of Egypt of which you are afraid, and they shall cling to you. Every sickness also and every affliction that is not recorded in the book of this law, the Lord will bring upon you until you are destroyed. Whereas you were as numerous as the stars of heaven, you shall be left few in number, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. 
And as the Lord took delight in doing your good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you mm-hmm. and destroying you. And you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. And the Lord will scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And then you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall find no respite, and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and languishing soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. Night and day you shall be in dread and have no assurance of your life. Hmm. In the morning you shall say, If only if it were evening. And at evening you shall say, If only it were morning, because of the dread that your heart shall feel and the sights that your eyes shall see. And the Lord will bring you back in these ships to Egypt, a journey that I promised that should never make, never make again. And there you shall offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but there will be no buyer. Yeah, that's perfect. So notice, I, I enjoy that passage because it says, it's not just the Lord delighted to bless you and now because you've done this evil thing, now God has to punish you. It's God will rejoice to destroy you and to bring you to ruin. He will rejoice. It's the same, um, oh, I can't remember. It's the same verse as some other prominent passage in Scripture, but that's unnecessary to talk about. Um, Deuteronomy 32 through uh, 39 through 43. So note, oh, you can just end there. I think I had you read further, but that's okay. Um, Notice what he says. He says, rejoice, O ye heavens, with him, that's with God. Rejoice because he avenges the blood of children, because he takes vengeance upon his adversaries, and he repays those who hate him. There is a rejoicing in God by vindicating his glory uh, over those who have belittled him. Not only is the wrath of God... um, a rejoicing in vindicating his glory, but the wrath of God is God's removal of his love from the wicked and his active hatred of them. Um, I'll just read a few sections from passages that I had. Jeremiah thirteen fourteen through 15 um, says, then, the Lord, uh, then you will say to them, the Lord says, Behold, I will fill all the inhabitants of this land, even the kings that sit on David's throne, and the priests, and the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with drunkenness. And I will dash them one against another, even the fathers and the sons together, says the Lord. I will not pity, nor spare, nor have mercy, but I will destroy them. And then in... in, in um, 16, Jeremiah 16, it says that the Lord will remove his pity and his compassion and his loving kindness and his mercy. Uh, Deuteronomy 29 says the Lord will, uh, will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against him and the curses written in this book will settle upon him and the Lord will blot him out his name out from under heaven. And then the next verse says, and the Lord will single him out to bring destruction upon him and all the curses that are written in this book. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6, uh, I'll just read... Uh, I only put a snippet because I plan on having someone else read this. I'll just skip first this. I'll paraphrase. First Thessalonians 1, 6 says, It is a righteous thing with God to repay those who trouble you when the Lord will come with flaming fire and his holy angels to exact vengeance on all those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, punishing them with everlasting destruction away from the glory of the Lord and the power and the, the power of the Lord and the glory of his might. So it's God finds it to be a righteous and a good thing to punish the wicked. Um, John 12, 39 through 40 says, 
this is verse 40, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they would see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Notice in John, he's saying that if they turned, I would heal them, but I'm going to harden their hearts, I'm going to blind their eyes so that they won't turn, so that I won't heal them, because I have anger and wrath against them, and I'm pleased to demonstrate my wrath in that manner. Psalm 11, 5, and 6. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and the scorching wind shall be their portion of their cup. Uh, Let's see here. And that's the end of my references. No? What psalm was that? Uh, 11, 5. Yes. Um, Help us see, because all of those texts are good and right and true. Yes. Help us see how they hold in tension with, it says at least twice in Ezekiel, I know in 18 and 33, and in many other places, this phrase that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. Yes. So how do we hold all of this in tension? Yeah. Well, in Ezekiel in particular, that's half of the phrase. It says, God does not delight in the death of the wicked, but rather that he he should turn from his ways and live, which is saying that God, his first preference, God, um, Jim said this years ago, and I guess the ineffable, unutterable name series was just very impressionable to me because I remember a lot from it. But um, his uh, sermon on the love of God says that God's first step toward us is always a step of mercy and always one of loving kindness. And so God's preference for a sinner would be that he turned from his ways and lived, unless the Bible clearly says in other places that he hardens them so that they won't turn. So that gets kind of (laughs) tension-y. I don't really completely know what to do with that. But God's first step, he, he showers mercy on us, and then when we spurn his loving kindness and his mercy, his answer to that, and even the passage in Deuteronomy 29, no, it's in Leviticus, where God says, I'm going to bring all of these evils upon you. He continually says, okay, I'm going to do this, and then if you don't turn from your ways, I'm going to harm you seven times more for your sins. And if you don't continue, so it's an always a, you can repent here, guys. I'm not just going to go off on you, but if you keep pushing me, I'm going to go off on you. And so God, it, it's that God has, is full of loving kindness and it's an ex, inexhaustible fountain. But God also has control over his attributes in such a way that he can remove his loving kindness from a person at any time. Um, I, I love the passage in Romans 9 where Paul is quoting Malachi and says, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. And a lot of us read that and we think, oh my gosh. Um, how, could, how could God hate Esau? And the marvel of that passage is not that God hates Esau. It's that God loves Jacob. And so God puts his love on people whom he chooses to love. Yeah. Well, not only that, if, if you're going to quote that passage, the entire context is Esau mm-hmm. looking up at God with this defiant, you knock me down, I'll just stand up again. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. Okay, so it, it's not just that Esau I hated, mm-hmm. it's in the face of Esau's arrogance and pride mm-hmm. that that statement is yes. made. Absolutely. I think there's also a tension for me in that, like, we have a tendency to talk about this on one side or the other, and we mm-hmm. forget that God can equally commune with himself and exist in full love and full wrath against mm-hmm. sin. Like, I don't understand that, but it helps me not to get so, like, judgy and mm-hmm. horrible, yeah. but also not so wishy-washy and soft. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't understand all of it. Yes. It's very complicated when you enter into the abyss of well, God's the nature. The name of what happens when God pours out his wrath and mercy at the same time. Mm-hmm. That wrath on the wicked is actually mercy to the faithful. Yes. And therefore, that's what happens. Yes. And therefore, that whole process is called judgment. Mm-hmm. So at Christ's coming, it's bad for the wicked, but mercy to those who love him. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's, it's the sword that pierces both ways. It'll pierce our hearts because it'll be full of joy and it'll pierce their hearts they decided not to follow God, and God doesn't make you follow Him. Mm-hmm. Right? Absolutely. So, good talk. But I think it's very important when we understand that sin renders us thoroughly hateful to God. And so when we talk about His 
forgiveness. That is a marvelous reality. When God, he says, as Natalie read in Deuteronomy 32, he has bent his bow for destruction and he will make his arrows drunk with our blood. And instead, and that's what we absolutely deserve, and we have no covenant, as Jonathan Edwards says, to cling to to preserve us from that. And God, instead of giving us what we deserve, has made a way for us to have forgiveness. Did you have something? I had one thing that I was about ready to burst earlier. I didn't get to say it, but whenever you were talking about the business about original sin, yeah. and we want so desperately to just be my sin, mm-hmm. yet Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin. Yes. And one of my, our problems, I think, is this idea that I'm not responsible for anybody's sins. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't think as priests of God that that's a very tenable place to be. Mm-hmm. I think that you have to have some idea that you're responsible for the nation, mm-hmm. so to speak, and the things that we leave undone. Yes. And I, I think, you know, that old saying about if man has solidarity, it's solidarity in sin. <laughs> and I, I just think that the whole idea that I only pray for my sins, mm-hmm. it, to me that doesn't fit with God wanting sins to be forgiven. The scripture says he wants them to yes. be forgiven. Jesus comes and he becomes sin yes. And yet we don't want to align ourselves with that, mm-hmm. that very mission of trying to alleviate Yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to end my devastating section about sin with um, a question. Oh, no, that was great. Um, I just didn't know how to follow that up. (laughs) So I'm just... um, With another question from the Catechism that says, Did God leave man to perish in his estate of sin and misery? And the answer is no. God, having out of his, good, his mere good pleasure from all eternity elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and bring them into an estate of salvation by the Redeemer. And so this then inter- ushers us into how we talk about forgiveness of sin. And before we get into me talking a lot, um, let's discuss what are the criteria? I can't think of any better way to ask this question because of how my brain works. So, what are the criteria whereby God grants us forgiveness? Nope. Are we all talking? At your tables. Okay. You can join a table. Yes. Exactly. So it's that idea of question nevertheless. Anthony's of the question would be how do you make discover one of the elect? I would say how do you become one of the elect? And in so doing by connect to that means you are not in Christ you're not. And so this this process of moving here to here is what we call faith. So I've been doing much more study probably better said in allegiance to our king. Yeah, 
or access to the justification is belief that it is true. And the result of that true belief is a persistent and pervasive belief that lasts until we are I think that harmonizes the whole picture all of that. There is a repentance and acceptance of the worship of Christ and sanctification. I don't believe it would be just absolution without a further part of the picture. I've said this before, but the eminence in my mind is a bridge to reconciliation and fellowship. And if we don't see reconciliation and fellowship, Have like thirty more seconds. Okay, peoples, we have to bring it on in. So what did we discuss at our tables? Peoples! Okay, we're, we're about, yes, this is why you can't let people talk, because then they like talking. That, that's why Scott needs to be here. It's awful. Why, where'd he go? I thought about doing that, and I was like, that might be a little diminutive, so I'm not going <laughs> to do that. Um, okay, so what did we discuss at our tables? We'll start at this table. <laughs> Courtney. Oh, okay, never mind. I, I saw, I thought you had to. Yes. So <laughs> we will, I'll come back to you, <laughs> this table. How about this table? Not Mac. Someone who's not Mac. Yes. Because I mistakenly cleared up everybody and then got Mac brought up that um, it requires a blood sacrifice, like there's something that has life has to be given up. We also talked about the fruit of repentance, which kind of where our lengthy discussion came from. Yes. Actually, that's good because that's in my notes. So, spot on. What about this table? Yes. Yes, I heard that. That was really good. Um, and we're back. Okay. <laughs> well, that is <laughs> that is perfect because that that's pretty much what I have in my notes. That I put that ju justification has two um, kind of spheres, if you please. Justification has. Now I will use green because we're on to a different topic. And I will just write in cursive. So justification has a sense in which it is extranos, which is outside, that's an S, which is outside of us. And then justification has intranos, which is in us, or Roman Catholics in the Council of Trent would define it as an adherence of the righteousness of Christ. 
Um, and that gets into some issues that we might talk about, but we'll talk about that at a different time. So extranos is that God has decisively and objectively done something outside of us by his work of election, by the propitiation of Jesus Christ, by the work of the Holy Spirit granting faith and repentance and creating that new life regeneration. Um, I'll just, we won't read it because we've read a lot of passages and I've taken a lot of time. But salvation, Ephesians 3, 1 through 10, um, it says at the very end in verse 10, by grace you have been saved through faith, um, and that not of yourselves, but it is a gift of God. The that in the that not of yourselves is a neuter whatever article. And that, because everything else preceding it is either masculine or feminine, the neuter is saying that everything in that little thing that Paul just said, grace, faith, salvation, all of it is a gift of God. It's not of yourselves. And it's not of works so that nobody can boast about it. That's something that God does outside of us. Regeneration, John 1, 11 through 13 says that as many as believe him or receive him, he has given them the rights to become the sons of God who were born not of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So regeneration is something that God does decisively outside of us. Redemption, Ephesians um, 1, 3 through 6 says that God, through the blood of Jesus Christ, has forgiven, given us redemption and forgiven all of our sins. And I love, Gala uh, not Galatians, uh, first, I always want to put this in Galatians, but it's not. First Timothy 3.16, which says, great is the mystery of godliness. Um, God, well, he was manifest in the flesh. There's a textual variant there, and it's funny. But he was manifest in the flesh. He was seen by angels, and it talks all about what Jesus has done. So it says, this is the mystery of godliness, of how we are godly. Jesus did all this stuff. He was seen by angels. He was hoped on in the world. He was, it's, it's a powerful time. Um, and so I have the grounds of our justification. I have the grounds in all caps. Okay. The grounds of our justification is the objective work of the triune God that is outside of sinners, but for sinners. Any questions on that? Was your hand raised? Okay. Um, and then there is this other factor, which when we talk about, I heard you talking, I heard you talking about perseverance, and I heard you talking about like reconciliation and all of these things, um, Talking about, you know, Jesus says all the time, if you don't forgive your neighbor's sins, the Father won't forgive your sins. There is an external reality where God has certain standards where he says you have to reach these or forgiveness is not a thing. So faith, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, Acts 16, 30-31. Repentance, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.38, works, faith without works is dead, James 2.14-16, that's the entire discourse. And then, something, I think that's all I had, but there are, there are other things where um, God says these stipulations are necessary as the work of redemption works out in time, God has no interest. I love what um, Jonathan Edwards says, and I think it's the... Nature of true virtue, oh no, it's religious affections, where he says, he's quoting Galatians 5, which says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And he says, God is not going to be mocked by your sin being clear in his face, and it's evident that you have not loved him, it's evident that you have not believed in him, and then you still think you're going to get into his heaven. He's not going to be mocked. You can't pull the wool over God's eyes. And so because God's decisive work outside of us has decisive and necessary implications in us and working out of us, I heard um, Philippians 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God uh, at work in you both to will and to do. Because God is at work in us, there must be, not only, it's not just a natural and normal flow, there must be a rigorous um, putting to death of sin. Romans 8 says, if you don't mortify your sins by the Spirit, you will die. 
And, you know, some Calvinists will be like, oh, well, let's do some gymnastics because, you know, it's the Spirit doing all these things. And you don't really have to do it. No, if you don't mortify your sins, you're going to die. <laughs> That's what the Bible says. And so there are things which God expects of us because he knows the nature of the work that he has done in us. And, yes? I, I think that Yes, and that's when we get to um, application at the very end. I put that, and I stole this from, I think, um, his last name is Lawson, Steve Lawson. He was saying that we have to have a good understanding of the, being a new creature in Christ. Because if you're going around thinking that God still holds your sins to your account and that you're just a miserable worm of a man and I just can't do any better because everything that I do is filthy rags anyway, then you're not going to live in victory over your sins. If you're just thinking, well, God's just not going to be pleased with anything I do. Now, Grant, we're not going to ever do anything perfectly, but God's Spirit is working in such a way that we are growing um, the book of 2 Corinthians talks about day by day, we are dying, and in our dying, the inner man is being renewed day by day. And so that's what, you've talked about this a lot in our class, the, you know, the graph, graph, graph of um, progressive sanctification, that sometimes you're going to have dips in your sanctification, but what's the general trend of your life? Are you growing in godliness? And that's why it's really important to understand that who I am as a saint, as opposed to being a sinner fallen in Adam, a, my sainthood, just like I'm not a sinner because I sin, I'm not a saint necessarily because I do righteous things. This is where this is important. Um, I'm not just a saint because I do righteous things or I do works of extra irrigation so that I have an excess of merit that makes God owe me something so that he has to give me heaven. But... He is, um, I'm a saint because of the objective righteousness of God. And that just as I do sins because of my sinful nature before I was regenerated, I do righteousness because of my new righteousness in Christ. And then, just like I would say, the righteous deeds a sinner does is kind of an outlier to his nature. Our sins are an outlier to our nature. And then that's when John says, on this side of the spectrum... He that does righteousness is righteous. That you have to do righteousness to be considered as righteous. Or he that makes a practice of sin is of the devil. <laughs> because if your life is defined by sin, you're not, you don't have the nature that is of God. Um, how much time we got? Oh, okay. So I'm going to skip the section that I was going to talk about what Doctrines are not included in the uh, necessary doctrines for the forgiveness of sins that aren't included in the creed. But if you have questions about that, we can talk about that later. Um, but let's go to use to be made of this doctrine. Okay, so the Bible is pretty clear. It gives a lot of grounds as to what the forgiveness of sins accomplishes in a person's life. And so I'm going to read a few passages of, of Scripture, kind of ruminate on them. So... Basically, my challenge to all of us is to consider as we go through our week and as we go through our lives, do we actually believe in the forgiveness of sins? Do we actually believe that God has done something definitively outside of us that, and has done a work powerfully in us that when he accomplishes that, that we are able to walk in that and that when we live in accordance to what God commands, that he will forgive 
God says, if you turn from your wicked ways, the Lord will abundantly pardon. It's not like, in, I think the reason why the early church fathers wanted to define the forgiveness of sins is because in the Roman world and in the Greek world, you really didn't know how to get forgiveness of sins. You knew that the gods were probably angry. Uh, you didn't know, quite know what caused it. I, I remember reading the, the drama of Hippolytus in um, great works of literature, and it starts with Aphrodite saying, I hate Hippolytus because Hippolytus had devoted himself to Artemis, who's the goddess of chastity and virginity, and you know she's the goddess of love. And so there's this whole debacle where she's just bringing all this disaster on Hippolytus. And so Hippolytus ends up kind of capitulating to uh, Aphrodite at the end of the uh, play, and it ends with Artemis saying, I hate Hippolytus. And so you know that somebody is probably angry with your life in the pagan world, but you don't know, even if you give some sort of expiation in the temple, you don't know if that's going to make um, the gods happy or not. And what defining that we believe in the forgiveness of sins is, is to say that there is an objective reality of what God has done and the promises that God has made, that when we meet those criteria, that when God does something powerfully in us, and that when we exercise that power um, through obedience and faith and repentance and all of these things, that forgiveness, and not only forgiveness, I love what um, Packer said in his little treatise on the Apostles' Creed. He says, the Bible in the New Testament speaks, it uses the word, talks about forgiveness all the time, but it's not just forgiveness, but justification. Because forgiveness is just a wiping away of the debt. It's just a removal of the bad stuff, but a justification is the restoration and the giving of a right standing before God. And that's really what we need, because if we're just brought to square one with Adam, I promise you we're going to mess it up. And so we need that extra dosage of righteousness uh, that God gives us. So do we really believe in the doctrine of the forgiveness of sins? If you believe in the doctrine of the forgiveness of sins, it, it creates extreme humility in you. Because the reason why I went through the, that catena of passages about God loathing sinners and hating sinners and willing to destroy them and not being willing to forgive them is because that is how miserable we are apart from Jesus Christ. And the only reason why you have any right standing before God is not because you're smart, it's not because you're pretty, it's not because you're better at systematic theology, it's not because you went to Sunnybrook Christian Church, it's not because you were baptized when you were five, it's not because you memorized the, the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed, or even if you know what that is. That's not what makes you righteous before God. We must realize, in light of God's forgiveness, that we were utterly repugnant to God. Everything, of grace in the Bible is not just, we say, it's unmerited favor. And it's not unmerited favor, it's God's demerited favor. Everything about us made God not want to love us. And he loved us anyway. And so, when you realize how, if the Holy Spirit were to leave you right now, you would plunge headlong into an abyss of sin and misery and destruction for eternity. And God had mercy. And that makes you humble. So you don't look at a Muslim or a Jehovah's Witness or an atheist and say, oh, you're just so stupid. I mean, in a sense they are, because the Bible says they're fools. So you can say that. But I recognize that if it wasn't for the grace of God, I would be that. Not only, let me read this passage from Romans uh, 11. Now that's a long passage and we don't have time. Um, forgiveness also empowers godly living. Sorry, that was, that was a powerful time. Forgiveness <laughs> empowers godly living. If you really believe uh, that you have the forgiveness of sins. Paul says this to Titus in Titus 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not, according to, uh, not because of works, but uh, by... Hold up. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, 
by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you, and notice this, I want you to insist on everything he just said, so that those who believe in God may be careful to devote themselves for good works. He's telling Titus, you must insist on telling people about what God has done to justify sinners, because if you tell them that, that will be the grounds for them to do good works. In the previous chapter, he said that he saved people and forgave their sins so that he might have a people zealous for good works. Last thing that I have, and there are more implications, but we don't have time to talk about all the implications of forgiveness. Um, Forgiveness gives you a forgiving spirit. Jesus, in the parable of the unforgiving servant, says, And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe! (laughs) That reminds me of a Rihanna song. Um, so his fellow servants fell down. I don't generally listen to Rihanna, but I, okay. (laughs) Thank you. It's just funny to me and I need a laugh. So, um, have patience with me and I will pay you. And he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what he had take, what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you, oh my, you all your debt because you pleaded with me, and you should not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he paid all his debt. So also, may your heavenly father, also also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And the the scary thing about that, I've heard people Catholics try to use that passage. Well, you're going to be in purgatory until you pay the last. No, the issue is not purgatory in this passage. Ten thousand denarii in the context is not a debt you can pay ever. That's ten thousand days of wages. No one's living that long. And so you're not getting out of prison if you don't forgive. And the Bible, I think, believe in Ephesians, says forgiving one another as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. That forgiveness, when you recognize how tremendous your sin debt against God was and how, in comparison, everybody else's sins against me are, like, really light because I'm not that big of a deal. I think that if you, when you get hung up on your... Um, on people wronging you, and I'm over time, so we need to go. I'll just say this. When you get hung up on, on people wronging you, I think you think a lot more of yourself than you actually do. I think you think, oh, I'm just such a big deal, and, and some, they've wronged me, and do they know who I am, and I'm Beethoven, and you can't do that. And you just think that you're much more than you are. And when you realize that <laughs> compared to God... Um, I love the passage in Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah 40, that says, all men, all the nations are less than nothing. They're the light dust in the balance. They're a drop in the bucket in comparison to God. You're not that big a deal, so get over yourself and forgive people. Um, So I've gone over, I would pray. I had the Lord's Prayer in our thing, but we're two minutes over. So go with God, go and live. Go, what did they say in the Episcopal Church? Go to live and to serve the Lord. That's go in peace to live and to serve the Lord. There we go. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Oh, I just needed to know the uh, type, the author. Gregory, Gregory is a...